Welcome back to the Ranking Presence Podcast. I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. It's time to talk about the Cleveland man, the only non-consecutive president we've had. Yeah, exactly. Up to this point. this This is a president that people only know one thing about, and that's, well, he served two terms, but they weren't next to each other. Yep. Which is interesting, and I feel like we could do a whole episode just on could that happen again. Like, oh yeah, but I mean, I've, I, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the Trump 2024 stickers occasionally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we, I'm going to discuss a little bit about what actually happened in the elections. I'm going to discuss a little bit more about the elections nice. than I normally nice. do because that's that's a very interesting part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about this guy. So. The Miller Center, which is one of our favorite sources, said... We will be quoting it quite often in this episode. Yep. No one would have thought it likely that Stephen Grover Cleveland... I love that he just went by his middle name. Yeah. A a lot of... It's so interesting people go by their middle name. Mm -hmm. Like Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses just switched his names. (laughs) Well, yeah, he even took one off. I think it was Hiram Ulysses. Mm -hmm. And it was like, "Eh, whatever. What, What if, like, just your... You're in your late 20s now. What if you're just like, I'm Ethan now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've known people that did that. Like, my grandma just decided she'd go by her middle name, and she just would sign all of her paperwork that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my friend Delaney, like, started going by that name when she was, like, 18, so. Yeah. People people can change their names, and that's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of times people like to go by their middle name, though, because at least it's something familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe maybe Grover just had a better feel back in the day. I mean, it's certainly less generic than Steven. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen is like, uh, who's Stephen? <laughs> so, and that's likely because of his background, but I just want to add an aside. Not that many people naturally think they're going to be president unless once you're, like, past the age of five. Yeah. yeah. Unless they're delusional. Yeah. So he was born in 1837 in New Jersey, who is the fifth of nine kids. So big family. Par for the course. His father, Richard Cleveland, was a Yale-educated Presbyterian minister. But his father passed away when Grover was 16, so he had to put college on home on hold while he worked to support his family, first with his older brother in New York City, then as a law student in Buffalo. Surprisingly enough, even though he never attended college, he was admitted to the law bar in 1858. Now, during the Civil War, he served as a district attorney for Erie County, and he would hire a substitute for $300 to serve on his behalf when he was drafted. Hmm. That was... A common practice. If you mm-hmm. got drafted, you could pay someone to serve on your behalf. I forget which president like got rid of that, but yeah, we gave them points for it. Was it um, it was was it a recent one? Like yeah, one we just I, reviewed. I think I think it was within the last like three or four. Okay, we'll have to go back over that. Now this would earn him a reputation as a slacker and draft dodger. <laughs> Although he was a hardworking lawyer, yeah. and interesting enough, as president, he delivered his inaugural address without notes. Ooh, spicy! And modern days, like they won't even deliver it without a teleprompter. That's true. That's true. And in 1870 to 1873, he served as sheriff in Erie County. That's in New York. Hmm. Now he has a few nicknames. So oh, give them to me. His first nickname he earned was Big Steve. <laughs> big Steve, because he was a big man. Now, as a man, he liked to go to restaurants and saloons. He liked to hunt and fish, attend poker parties, do Democrat work, drink, and other pleasures in life. Now, he wasn't a big fan of high society. He never really traveled much, and he wasn't a big fan of music, fiction, or poetry. So oh, things more no fun. Yeah. Think a little bit more Jackson and a little less, you know, Quincy Adams. Gotcha, gotcha. Even though Jackson liked books and Cleveland was like, eh, whatever. 
So, despite this, Cleveland was never a big partisan man until the Buffalo City Democratic Committee asked him to run for mayor in 1881, and he pulled off a surprise victory. Hmm. Now, as mayor, he had to handle corruption in the municipal services. He vetoed a lot of pork barrel uh, legislation, and he set a standard for hard work and efficiency. Democrats would then nominate him for governor. And in his governor campaign, he gained another new nickname from friends and relatives. Uncle Jumbo. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Jumbo? What? Like, they wouldn't let go of the fact that the dude had a little few extra pounds. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, he, we accept all kinds for presidency. Yep. He served as governor of New York from 1882 to 1884, when he would veto extravagant spending. Oh, that is something he would do many more times. Yep. He would go up against the Tammany Hall political machine, a Democrat machine that had actually gotten him into office. So, oh, yeah. kind of a, kind of like Chester Arthur. Yeah. With all this experience, Cleveland was front and center for the presidency. So, talking a little bit about his personality, in the White House, Cleveland paid his own bills, got rid of his presidential yacht, cussed in public, and hated fancy cooking. He <laughs> once Man, wrote, the Jacksonian Democrats yeah. must have loved him. Yep. He said, I must go to dinner. And I wish it was to eat a pickled herring, Swiss cheese, and a chop instead of the French stuff I shall find. <laughs> now, another fun fact. Although he was a bachelor, he became, in 1886, he became the first president to be married in the White House. Ooh, tell me about this marriage. So it was rather scandalous as he married a woman named Frances Folsom. Frances Folsom, who had been born in 1864. So almost 30 years younger than Goodness! Him. I mean, I realize like this is like the 1800s, but still, that is a lot for then. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, even back then people were like, eh, Like the president doing that? Yeah, that seems a little rob in the cradle. I mean, Trump pretty much did that, but if it was within his presidency, that's that would be even wilder. Yep. However, the two met to at least seem happy and had five childrens. Five children. Now, fun fact. One of his granddaughters, Philippa Foote, would invent something known as the trolley problem. Have you ever heard of this? Oh, she invented the trolley problem? Yeah, that yeah. That is super cool. So for those who don't know what that is, that's the idea of, okay, you got a train that's going in one direction, and it's going to hit one person and kill them. It's going to hit a, actually five people and kill them. Now, you can reroute the trolley, but that will hit one person. So what do you do? Do you let it hit the five people, or do you let it run over one person? And, like, people kind of, like, have a bunch of variations. Oh, problem. yeah, like, there's lots. Like, the most popular I've heard is, like, the one person is someone you personally care about. Yep, yep, I've heard that. So, you know, a complex question. Mm -hmm. Now, Francis was actually very popular, and... <laughs> This reminds me of kind of what people do today, especially with the royal family in England. But people would sell scarves, bottles, postcards, and other items with her face on it. Huh. So, you know, kind of like that love of the first lady, I guess because it was a young first lady and yeah. it was White House marriage. I mean, by far the youngest first lady so far. Yeah. Cleveland was not a big fan of the media frenzy and he hated the scrutiny of his family, but Francis handled it with grace. Now, also in the White House, Cleveland had a mouth cancer scare. But the way he dealt with it, this is some classic, almost Old West stuff. <laughs> he kept it secret, he put himself in a chair on a boat, and he tied the chair to a mast, and the doctors removed the lesion. Oh, man. And he would wear an artificial jaw on his left upper side, but no one really noticed. That's wild. So personality-wise, biographer Alan Nevin said Cleveland had two sides of his personality. To the ends of his life, his intimates were struck by the gulf which separated the exuberant, jovial Cleveland of occasional hours of carefree banter and the stirve, unbending Cleveland of work and responsibility, whose hmm. life seemed hung round by a hall of duty. He was also blunt and had a quick temper. Now, some say he's a type 8, the boss, which I think that tends to make sense. Yeah, he seems I can to be see like, it. you know, 
oh, he's a he's a nice guy, but you know he'll get a little you know. Oh, he's my a dude. strong personality. Yes, because he was bold and in charge. Now, despite being the son of a preacher, he was never super religious. And when his daughter Ruth died, he struggled with a lot of doubt about where she was until he said, "Well, God has come to my help, and I'm able to adjust my thought to dear Ruth's death, which is much comfort as selfish humanity would permit." And he would say that God had sort of given him this cert, this thing he had to do as president, and he should, you know, do his duty, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go into... Well, actually, um, I can talk about his campaigns, but do you want to talk about his domestic policy first, or...? Ooh, camp... Let, let's see. Um, yeah, let's do... I can break it down where I talk about his first campaign. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, and then we can come back to it for his other ones. So, in 1884, Cleveland went up against James G. Blaine of Maine. He had a lot of advantages. First, he had battled with corruption, and he he could carry New York, which every Democrat needed to win, because every other state went for Republicans. Blaine also had trouble. He was irritating, and there was a Republican faction of businessmen who hated Blaine, and their name was the Mugwumps. Oh, the Mugwumps! <laughs> yep. But they loved old Cleveland since he challenged the corrupt political machines. Now, Blaine was all about tariff protection, while Cleveland emphasized honesty. Democrats called Blaine an immoral blackmailer who got favors for railroads. And I they, mean, to be fair, like, the Republicans had, like, two or three presidents up to this point that are like, yeah, I mean, they were machine guys, so... Yeah. Corruption. And the Democrats had a slogan calling him Blaine Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental lair from the state of Maine. <laughs> Liar from the state of Maine. <laughs> now, Cleveland only gave two speeches, but Republicans had some accusations against him. And here's where it gets a little wild and, and spicy. Give it to me. They claim Cleveland had an illegitimate child with a woman who he then sent to an insane asylum. Whoa. Whoa. And Cleveland admitted, well, I might be the dad. <laughs> Whoa. And so Republicans said, with Cleveland and Blaine, there's a choice between the brothel and the family, between indecency and decency, between lust and law. Now, there's something that modern Republicans would still absolutely do. Yep. Now, the truth was somewhere in between. So, Cleveland did have relations with a woman named Maria Haplin in 1874. She gave birth to an infant boy named Cleveland as a child's father. He had agreed to name the child Oscar Folsom Cleveland after himself, and his law partner, who as it happened, could also have been the responsible party. Oh, A lot of hearsay there. Yeah. Now, when the mother suffered a mental collapse, the child was adopted by a couple living in the western part of the state, and Cleveland never again saw the child or mother. Whoa. So that's wild. You know, true, half true on both ends. And like, like hearing every time I I hear about like mental issues, like pre like nineteen seventy, it's like oof. Yeah. Like they literally just attributed everything to like mental collapse, or it was probably just the fact that like women existing back then was basically a mental health issue for yeah, them because yeah. they were treated so horribly. Yeah. So, that sucks. Yep. Now, Cleveland barely won the election, only winning by fewer than 30,000 votes and 219 electoral votes to 182. By but he, hair. he did carry northern states like New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Maryland, Delaware, and West Virginia. So, that's... 1884, and I'll be back for his other two, but Curtis, tell us a little bit about his policy. All right, let's take a quick break to acknowledge the state of the nation. Oh, yes. So, Brad, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of the Army of the Commonwealth in Christ? Yes, I believe so. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more. Let's talk a little labor. Yeah. A protest march 
by unemployed workers, mm-hmm. led by Ohio businessman Jacob Coxie, and uh, was uh, was conducted in 1894. Mm-hmm. And the the they were, or their official name that they said was the Army of the Commonwealth in Christ, but they were nicknamed Coxie's Army, and that's kind of what they're known as. Mm, I like that. They marched on D.C. in 1894 in response to the Panic of 1894, which we will talk about. They demanded yep. that the government create jobs with new infrastructure projects, such as road construction and to pay the workers in paper money, increasing circulation because populists were very in favor of paper money. Yes, yes. It consisted of 100 men marching from Massillon, Ohio, to D.C. They started with 400 men, but marching from Ohio to D.C. is a long way, so a lot of them fell off. Yeah, like, and we'll go back home. Yeah. Coxie and other leaders of the movement were arrested for stepping foot on the grass of the U.S. Capitol. Yep. And so it it ended in, like, blazing failure. Mm -hmm. But it is notable for being the first protest march on Washington, D.C. That's very interesting. We're going to hear a lot more about labor issues. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a big issue. (laughs) It it seems like the turn of the century, like, late 18, early 1900s, is, like, the labor decades. Yes. When, like, the most work was done to, like, further labor uh, relations and... Hopefully make things better for people. I mean, we certainly have labor issues today still. Yeah, uh, yeah. Unionize Amazon. That's a good idea. Yes, I agree. All right, so let's talk foreign policy mm-hmm. to start off with. Grover Cleveland's principal agenda in foreign policy was to oppose territorial expansion and entangling mm. alliances. Mm, so that's, that's some classic Thomas Jefferson yep, yep. stuff. He's like, I'm keeping out of all of it. We're yep. just keeping to ourselves. Yeah. Well, but, actually, maybe a little bit more Federalists. I correct yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's easy to get our wires crossed because there have been so many different presidents with so many different ideologies. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. With these purposes in mind, he decided to withdraw the Franklinhausen Zavala Treaty from senatorial consideration. Okay. This treaty gave the United States the right to construct a, a canal in Nicaragua that was to be owned jointly by the two nations. I feel like every president we go through, one of them is like, let's build a canal. And the second one's like, no, 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 no canal. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, America will get a canal, but we'll have to wait and see. Yes. <laughs> spoilers. No spoilers. Cleveland also dealt with issues in Hawaii. The oh, first yeah. mention of a lovely little series of islands. Mm. He was concerned in his second term that former President Harrison had supported a revolution on the islands to overthrow the Hawaiian monarchy. Yeah. Now, Cleveland himself even attempted to pressure the revolutionaries into handling into handing power back to Queen... I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try it regardless. Queen Liluokalani. Okay. But they refused, and Cleveland ultimately gave up. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, okay. I love how presidents are like, uh, I'm making a stand. Uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Venezuela, because the way I would describe uh, Cleveland's dealing with... Mm-hmm. Issues around Venezuela is Cleveland's Missile Crisis. Oh, <laughs> ooh, this sounds spicy. So Cleveland's interference in the Venezuelan boundary dispute was his most controversial foreign policy decision. Mm. Now, Britain, which had amassed holdings in British Guinea since yep. the early 19th century, yep. laid claim to the Orinoco River, and thus a vast interior trading region reaching into Venezuela. Right. When Venezuela asked the United States to arbitrate the dispute, Cleveland eagerly accepted. (laughs) That's not a good sign. Nope. The British balked at U.S. involvement, leading Cleveland to write a quote-unquote 20-inch gun missive. Oh, 20-inch gun. (laughs) In which he threatened Britain with war. 
That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Like, you thought we were done, like, threatening Britain with war, but no, it's freaking, like, 1890s. Yeah. And we're still doing this. So much for entangling alliances. (laughs) (laughs) To force the point, he sent U.S. naval vessels to confront British warships near Venezuela. We literally have a standoff. (laughs) Amidst a wave of war hysteria in America, Britain agreed to accept arbitration. Okay. Thank goodness that cooler heads prevailed. Yeah. Historians debate Cleveland's motivations here, as mm-hmm. well as the outcome of the episode, because, like, this flies in the face of everything he seemed to want to do. Yeah. What is not in dispute is Cleveland's responsibility for bringing the Monroe Doctrine back uh-huh. to life as the basis of U.S. foreign policy in the hemisphere. Yeah, because the Monroe Doctrine sort of comes up and then goes away yep. and comes up. Like, it's so interesting how these things we keep on talking about them over and over. Yeah. It's like, well, they're dealt with the British in Nicaragua again. <laughs> they just keep on popping up again. Yeah, like, and again. like, America really is, like, a serialized thing. How, like, it really helps to, like, know, like, what happened before so you can understand what's happening right now. Yep. Now, let's talk about kind of some miscellaneous foreign policy issues okay. that, uh, that Cleveland dealt with. In 1885, he sent a small detachment of Marines to Panama, then a Colombian province, to help quash a rebellion. Yep. He also dispatched U.S. troops to Rio de Janeiro in defiance of a blockade of its harbor by pro-monarchists rebelling against the Republic of Brazil. Ah, that's right. Yeah. In Cuba, Cleveland wanted to remain neutral refusing to support the insurrection against Spanish rule and urging instead that Spain adopt reforms that would lead to gradual independence. On this issue, he stood in opposition to the Senate, which had adopted resolutions urging Cleveland to recognize the belligerency of the Cuban rebels. Mm -hmm. Congress then moved to defy the president by threatening to recognize Cuban independence. Cleveland responded flatly, saying uh, he would characterize any such resolution as a usurpation of presidential authority. <laughs> the matter usurpation of... <laughs> of presidential authority. How dare you? <laughs> Which, I don't know if that is or not. Yeah, yeah, it's like, kind of I, on the line. I guess you could say, based on what was laid down by George Washington, that the president sort of has more authority in foreign policy, but, you know... But it, an actual, That's just a precedent. That's yeah, not yeah, a law. exactly. An actual, like, documented, like, this is what the founding go- documents say. Like, it's it's a little fuzzy. Yeah. Um, and let's see. Um, the matter remained unresolved at the end of his term. Yep, sounds about right. <laughs> First and second. So, uh, domestic policy. Mm, that was the warm-up. This is what he actually focused on. Yeah, I know there is some <laughs> crazy stuff. So, overall, Cleveland did not consider himself as an quote-unquote activist president. Of course he didn't. <laughs> he seldom sent bills to Congress or tried or tried to lead legislatively. Mm-hmm. He instead focused on making the federal government more efficient by appointing new officials based on merit. So, kind of mm-hmm. continuing Arthur's work against the spoil system. Yeah. So, that's positive. Yeah. His leadership style was to appoint competent members to his cabinet and let them work. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that worked for George Washington. Yeah. It worked for uh, Monroe, yeah, who were yeah. both great presidents. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Two primary beliefs shaped Cleveland's presidency. A belief in money backed by hard gold. Oh, you love <laughs> the gold standard, let and, me tell you. And an insistence that government interfere in people as little as possible. That's some classic conservatism yep. right there. Like, I'm sure a lot of us have probably heard uh, either friends or, like, maybe our dads or, or, you know, not necessarily dads, but just older relatives just say, well, I mean, I just don't want the government to interfere in my life. Yeah. And that's a perfectly fair point. Yeah. 
No one. I don't think no one wants Uncle Sam being like, "Let me tell you what you should be doing." Okay, I'm I'm gonna go off on a slight side tangent. Here. Okay, all right. Let let me tell you, Brad, why I am not a. Oh, what's what? I I it completely lost my uh, completely left my mind. What's the third party? Libertarian. 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 Yeah, yeah, libertarian. Yep. Here's why I'm not a libertarian. Okay. So libertarian, the basic idiom of being a libertarian is, you don't want the government to mess with you. You think that the the less government uh, interference, the better, and like yes. they tend to have like uh, alliances with both sides where they're like very like pro like guns and like rights and yes. all, but they're also like mostly pro choice and yes. that type of yes. stuff. So the reason I am not a libertarian is because oppression exists. Yes, that's a because good point. if we were to just stop government intervention, like. Well, people are still going to be oppressed in society. Yeah, people yeah. are still going to be like harmed in society. And at its like most idealistic level, government is supposed to help like even social injustice out. Yeah, it's supposed to be a check and balance. Yeah, and I believe the Federalist Papers actually agree with it. Now they were a lot more conservative in some ways, but yeah. they're like, this is a check and balance against sort of factionalism. Yeah, and when you try to make government as small as possible, I get the idea of it being more efficient. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a fine idea. But all you're really doing is you're giving the power to someone else. And who is that? Well, usually big business. Well, yeah, because, I mean, America is a capitalist system. So yeah. if you don't regulate any of that, then they're just going to do whatever they want. And a few people are going to get all the money. Yep, that's how it goes. So, anyway, tell us a little yeah. more about his domestic policy. All right. So, uh, he turned away hundreds of veterans' pension bills. Oh, boy. Because he thought they were fraudulent. Of course he did. And he also vetoed a bill to provide drought relief to farmers in the West, owing owing this to his belief that such assistance was not the province of national government. Oh, uh, we've heard that before. Especially recently with uh, Puerto Rico yeah. and them needing aid and not getting it. Yep. So, uh, yeah. Let, it's let, like, then why do we send you pay you taxes? Yeah. How about we go from bad to worse? Oh, no. <laughs> I think I know where we're going, but All right. lead me on a journey here. All right, so uh, let's talk about race relations in Grover Cleveland. Because oh, we've now officially shifted from did this president own slaves to does this person, does this president believe that African-American people deserve rights? Yeah, Or exactly. protection? Exactly. Or, you know, anything at yeah, all. Yeah, A handshake, you know. <laughs> a bathroom. Yeah, literally. So, let's start with African-Americans. On the issue of race, he agreed with white Southerners and oh, their no. reluctance to treat African Americans as social and political equals. Oh boy! Yucks. Yep. Made he also made special efforts to reach out to Democrats and former Confederates oh, in the boy. South to assure them that they had a friend in the White House. You've got a friend oh. in me. Oh, you've got a friend in me. If you're racist and you fought the Union, oh, you've got a friend in me. Put it on Spotify. Yep. Uh, he also opposed integrated schools in New York and saw uh, African Americans as essentially inferior. Of course. And believing the government should not interfere with what he regarded as a social problem, mm. he opposed efforts to protect the suffrage of African Americans. Yep. yep. How, how are voting rights a social problem? Yeah, I don't get it. I think I think what they're thinking is, well, if they vote, they're going to elect bad policies or they're going to vote for these corrupt men because they're not smart enough. It, it, yeah, it kind of like is uh, ghosts of like early, early American thinking. We're like, well, all of these people are poor farmers, so we can't have them directly elect everybody. Yeah, yeah. 
And I'm sure I've even heard some women actually say this to like, well, I mean, we women we shouldn't vote because we just we just think with our emotions. We can't, you know. Yikes. Some be- it's 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 weird that some people still think that. Yeah. But that it's was a indoctrination. Yeah. So what were some other uh, bad or awful or good right, things? All uh, right, let's 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 get even worse. Oh no! Uh, so uh, Chinese immigration is something that we mentioned last time. Ah yes, yes, yes. And uh, it kind of came even into more fruition during okay. uh, Cleveland's presidency. In his first term as president, Cleveland condemned the quote-unquote outrages being committed against the Chinese on the nation's west coast. Okay. He soon concluded, however. That prejudice towards the Chinese in the region was so deep and their culture was so, quote-unquote, alien that America could not absorb this immigrant group. Okay. Therefore, he worked to limit Chinese immigration and to prohibit those who had left the United States to visit relatives in China from returning. Mm. Yeah. The principal differences between Chinese and European immigrants, he believed, was the unwillingness of the former to assimilate into American society. That sounds familiar. Classic, like, imperialist ideology. Yeah. Um, and uh, something else that I learned that I didn't realize was uh, he was actually the one to sign into law the Chinese Exclusion Act. I didn't realize he was the yeah. one that officially the, signed it. There was, there was a bill before that that yeah. Chester Arthur signed, but, like, the official, like infamous Chinese exclusion act that like lasted for like 50 years was the one that he signed okay that makes sense so yeah I feel like uh, at this point the new like quote unquote slavery is like that we're gonna have to examine with every president is like well were they complicit in the Chinese Exclusion Acts? Like, yeah. Up until, like, what, 1933, the answer is yes to all of them? Yeah. And were they expli- complicit in Jim Crow? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Dark stuff. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about Native Americans. <laughs> oh, boy. Like, I feel like we're just getting more and more, like, issues as, like, we we get we make tiny steps of progress, too. Yeah. It's like, oh, now we got union issues and Chinese immigration, you know? Oof. In Cleveland's view, the Native Americans were wards of the nation. Yeah, just like, like Jackson. Like wayward but promising children in need of a guardian. Of course. Yeah. Classic. Classic. Or early or late 1800s mm. presidents. Regarding himself as a quote-unquote Indian reformer, Cleveland sought to persuade Native Americans to forego their old tribal ways. He sought to assimilate them into white society by means of education, private land ownership, and parental guidance from the federal government. Now, that sounds good, but let's talk a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah, there's more to that. Though he did not campaign for the bill, he eagerly supported and signed into law the Dawes Act of 1887, which empowered the president to allot land within the reservations to individual Native Americans, with all surplus land reverting to the public domain. Oh, no. And, like, yeah, from, like... A top level, you're like, oh yeah, you're you're giving Native American like individuals like more land, but no, it was a disastrous policy yes. that robbed Native Americans of much of their land because literally, America can say, okay, well, we see you have this nice piece of reservation land here, but we're gonna give, we're gonna car- car- carve out little pieces and like give it to individual families so you can like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, yeah, and then take away all the rest of the land, yeah, because eminent domain means you know government can use it for whatever yep if they want and uh, it did little to improve their way of life Mm -hmm. so uh yeah let's talk about uh the panic of 1894 now oh and the union (laughs) issues by 1894 nearly 18 percent of the nation's workers were unemployed Mm, that's that's like getting close to depression levels Uh uh-huh this is this is the worst depression that america has seen thus far yeah 
Coxey's army, as we previously mentioned, tried to do something, but Cleveland did not believe that the government should sponsor work projects to relieve the Depression, and the march did nothing to change his mind. Of course. Labor unrest continued to haunt Cleveland during his second term. In 1894, 150,000 railroad workers from all over the nation struck in support of the Pullman car workers' walk-off mm-hmm. at a company town outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now, even though the governor of Illinois, John El- Altgeld, did not want Cleveland to use federal troops to break the strike, oh, the, president, the president did so anyway. Of course he did. Many observers wondered whether the nation was on the brink of either anarchy or presidential tyranny. Mm-hmm. Cleveland's handling of the strike alienated many northern workers from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's bad. Yeah, that's 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 a lot. Is, is, is there anything else that you can say? Tell me about him. Or is oh, that... oh no, we're not done with the Panic of eighteen. Oh no. Yet. Oh boy, <laughs> it's getting worse. No, there's there's a lot more. Cleveland's most forceful response to the depression, and forceful being like the thing he most did to try to alleviate it, mm-hmm. was to blame the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of eighteen ninety, mm-hmm. passed during the Harrison administration, which we will talk about in. Next week's episode, which will kind of fu- function as a prequel to some of the stuff we're talking about. Yeah, no. you know, it's, it's like it's like Star Wars. Yeah, you know, we go forward and back at the same or like time. or like the most recent MCU Black Widow movie. Like we, yeah. we got to tell the stories of what came before. Exactly. And uh, so he blamed that for the nation's economic troubles. This law, this law that he was against, required the Treasury to purchase 4.5 million ounces of silver. I can't be having that silver stuff in my economy. No, only gold, <laughs> only money. <laughs> Uh, to be coined as silver dollars. As a result, the production of silver increased while the supply of gold <laughs> fell, making gold more expensive. By 1893, the gold value of the silver dollar fell to 60 cents. Okay. Cleveland called for the, for the repeal of the bill and was successful. Mm-hmm. This led to people cashing in their government bonds for gold. Well, I mean, on one hand, people were getting money, but on the other hand, uh, the gold supply in the nation was dwindling. Yeah. Not much gold to go around. And Cleveland had to call upon the help of money man J.P. Morgan himself ah. to support the bonds and uh, basically cash them out for gold to people who were cashing in the government bonds. Mm-hmm. This infuriated Cleveland's constituents because he was getting into bed with Wall Street interests. Mm. So yeah, yeah, right out of like the political machine into like the hands of the Wall Street capitalists. Yep. Now in the congressional elections of 1894 cleveland's failure to deal with the depression instigated the greatest realignment of voters since the civil war i did not know that like the democrats took a bath yeah and the democrats basically lost everyone uh lost everywhere but in the deep south yep one missouri democrat even said that the election was quote-unquote the greatest slaughter of innocence since Herod. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Referring to the king of Judea under the Roman regime, who was infamous for his tyranny, violence, and wickedness, and tried to kill baby Jesus. Yep. This ushered in what is known as the progressive era of political parties. I, I believe it's like the fourth era of American political parties. Ooh. And a realignment of the politics in both parties. Now, yeah. this is this is like the first time where like, Neither party really changed its name, but no. they both completely like reorganized like what they believed. Yeah, there was a great shift. Yeah. Cleveland felt besieged, surrounded by enemies, and beset by hecklers at every turn. He left the White House in 1897 as an embittered but arrogant man, convinced that he had been betrayed by the quote-unquote agrarian radicals and quote-unquote silverites Silverites. within his own party. So let's rewind. Tell us about the second election that led to our only non-consecutive president. Okay. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit about both elections. So in 1888, Cleveland was in trouble. He was in trouble for many things. As Curtis mentioned, he had vetoed you know, pensions and civil war vets. That's not popular. And he also had a very callous behavior towards worker rights. So Republicans called in the big bucks. They brought in campaign war chests of $3 million from manufacturers to fight That's Cleveland a lot. with Benjamin Harrison, who was, you know, an Indiana senator. He was also the grandson of William Henry Harrison. So Our boy. Yeah. So Cleveland actually won the popular vote, but lost in the Electoral College. Now, if, if memory serves, didn't he win the popular vote of all three of the elections he ran in? Yes. That's wild. He won popular vote 486 to 47.9%. But he lost New York and Indiana by narrow margins, which cost him the election 233 to 168. And as you mentioned, Republicans won both houses. Now, in 1892, when Cleveland comes back around, he does a little bit better. Now, the People's Party had emerged at this time, which was more of a progressive party. Mm -hmm. So Republicans were in disarray, and the People's Party split the vote. So Cleveland won 46% of the vote to Harrison's 43 and he won 277 electoral college in the electoral bleh, votes. So, Curtis mentioned a few things. I'm going to mention a, just a, a few facts from his second term. Give it to me. So, in 1894, that little um, that little strike you talked about with the American Railway Union, that was led by Eugene Debs. He was a future socialist that would famously run for president from jail and receive more than a million Ooh. votes. That's scary, scary word, socialism. Yeah, socialism is going to come up real soon in our episodes. And Welcome to the progressive era. Yeah, yeah. And this is, it's still, it's viewed negatively by most Americans, even at this point, but it's not as much back then as you might think. Ooh. Socialism could carry its weight back in that day. Mm-hmm. So one thing that was even worse about this were company workers were forced to live in a company town where prices were higher, and George Pullman, who ran the railway, had just cut wages. So that's pretty bad, but, uh, I mean, gold reaches levels $124 million, so, you know, he restores the gold. And gold standard. Utah becomes the state, the 45th one. Nice. Now, Cleveland actually refused to run for president because he realized, you know, uh, I can't win, you know, after his second term. Mm-hmm. So, the DNC picks William Jennings Bryan, who was the Ooh. silver champion. William Jennings Bryan. Yeah. This was not his, This would not be his last attempt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this would lead to another group of Democrats called the Gold Democrats. And they said, Cleveland, please run. And he's like, nah. <laughs> what, all ten of them at this point? Yep. So, actually, so, as we know, after Cleveland, William McKinley gets inaugurated. The only thing Cleveland does is a month before this happens, he actually vetoed a bill that would ban illiterate immigrants. So, you know, plus yeah, one, yeah. one, one. Moves one. the needle slightly back towards the good. Yep. The only other thing I was going to mention is after the presidency, Cleveland moved to Princeton, became a trustee of the university. He would write essays and political commentary, and according to a book called Political Presidential Problems, as most controversial decisions, and he would die in 1908 due to gastrointestinal issues. His final words were, I've tried so hard to do right. I tried so hard and got so far. Venezuela would fly its flags at half-mass, because I guess they liked him for dealing with Britain. Hmm. And Theodore Roosevelt wrote his eulogy where he called him Happy Warrior. Hmm. So, where is this man, this first Democrat we've had since James Buchanan? Well, I guess you could, Andrew Johnson, I guess, but he's, you know, a Republican in name only, so. Okay, so I have one thing to add. Okay. That uh, I, I read, but I forgot to write down. Okay. And it, it, it's an interesting curiosity. 
So I'm reading this directly from Politico.com because okay. I googled it very uh, haphazardly. Oh, um, cool. So November 25th, 1885, like fairly close to uh, the inauguration of yes. uh, Cleveland for the first time, Democrats had won their first presidential election. Um, and from the start, Vice President Thomas Hendricks was at odds with President Grover Cleveland. Okay. Unlike Hendricks, who favored government intervention in the economy to promote agrarian reform, Cleveland advocated laissez-faire economics, believing that government paternalism would undermine the national character. Okay. He certainly believed in government pater- paternalism about Indians, though. Yeah, he did. Or Native Americans, rather. As a congressman, senator, and... Indiana's governor, Hendricks opposed African-American rights. He voted for segregation and against constitutional amendments, abolishing slavery and granting suffrage to former slaves. Mm -hmm. And this is something Hendricks directly said. I say we are not of the same race, Hendricks declared. We are so different that we ought to not compose one political community. Yikes. In September, Hendricks left Washington to attend the 35th anniversary reunion of the surviving members of Indiana's Constitutional Convention. While at okay. home in Indianapolis, he died in his sleep on this day in 1885. Okay. One year into the uh, into uh, Cleveland's presidency. And this actually led um, the first, uh, well, I, I believe it was it was either the first or second um, presidential succession bill okay. to be passed. Okay. Where they set the groundwork for what would happen if both the president and the vice president were incapacitated. Ooh, that is And it would later be refined in, like, I think the, the 40s or something to include, like, okay, this is exactly what would happen, like, down, like, 10 spots of the yeah. roster, basically. So I thought that was interesting. This is, like, the first VP that has passed away in office. Yeah, that is very interesting. Not not a great person, it seems like. But a no. uh, person nonetheless. Yep. So uh, what do you think in, in terms of the Well, rankings? okay. So, positives for him. He didn't like corruption, which is cool. You know, he worked against that. Negatives, everything else. Yep. <laughs> you know, he mishandled uh, uh, depression. He mishandled union issues. A he lot of foreign policy stuff he didn't seem super savvy on. Yeah, he mishandled race. He mishandled Native Americans. There's was, there was all sorts of stuff. So, hmm. um, well, shall I... Uh... I'm going to read from the bottom. Yeah, let's read from the bottom. All right. From the bottom, we got Andrew Johnson, James Buchanan, Franklin Pierce, Millard Fillmore, William Henry Harrison, Martin Van Buren, John Tyler, Andrew Jackson, Chester Arthur. I think I have an idea of where I'm going to put them in. This is going to... This is... This is going to make some Grover Cleveland fans mad. Because I know we have some Grover Cleveland fans that follow us on Twitter. So, (laughs) please forgive us. Well, I mean, according to... uh, This was according to Wikipedia. Um... But uh, apparently, like, he's considered, like, a middle to upper. Middle middle upper president in people's rankings. That is interesting. Maybe there's, like, a big piece of information we missed, but... uh, Well, I mean, I mean, don't forgive us because you know we, this is our opinion. Yeah, feel, but, feel free to tweet at us about yeah. some information that we'd love, to, we'd love to learn. It depends on what you consider the most important. If you yeah. consider the most important, like corruption and just running a good, yeah, you know, like he trimmed the government down and tried to run it efficiently. Yeah, but also you have to consider like we're coming at it from our own political opinions, which yeah. do inform this. Yeah, like we definitely yeah. we're definitely both like political idealists. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would say we needed a president who was maybe a little bit more of an activist president to really mm-hmm. tackle these issues so that they don't get kicked down yeah. the can't, the road. So, I mean, I would rank him, okay. I'd say, I'd say he's more of a middle-of-the-road sort of president. So I would rank him maybe, um, 
right below James Garfield. What do you think of that? That's it's a little bit higher than I was thinking. Oh, where were you? I thinking? was I was actually gonna probably put him like under Andrew Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I could but, see that. Uh, what about? I, I, I think I, I I think I have a good compromise. Okay. How about directly underneath Chester Arthur? That's a fair one. Because yeah. I th- I think that uh, Chester Arthur's like big like terrible thing was like the the introduction of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So, yeah. Like, um, but then Grover Cleveland's yeah, the one. Who it was like, way worse with all of that. So yeah. uh, so that's that's Grover Cleveland. But yeah, we have once again a final caucus. So Grover Cleveland famously supported big business over unions. I mean, he sent mm-hmm. federal troops. Yeah. Now, some might argue he was simply upholding law and order. Mm. My question is, what should a president's role be? To support the people, the workers union, the common man, or to uphold the status quo? Oh, man, this is, this is one of those that files under, like, the category of, like, well, you'll never know until you're actually, like, the president and you have to deal with these hard issues. That's true. That's true. <laughs> like, we, we can be, like, we can be, like, pro-labor and, like, pro-majority like majority all we want, but, like... We're never. We're probably never going to have to make a decision like this. No, we won't. And it, it, it's it's a tough decision to make. Yeah. Um, but I think that uh, any time you introduce like a militant element mm-hmm. into something like a protest or like yep. a uh, yeah, like a protest or a demonstration or a strike, like that's when you as a government are saying like we are restricting your ability to uh, to express yourself. In right. Essence. Yeah. And ex- express either your uh, distaste for something or, like, uh, express uh, that we don't support what you support. Yeah. At least that's, that's the optics of it. Yeah, it does seem to be that way. And uh, kind of, like, what I think of most recently is the, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests saw, like, so many, like, examples of, like, p- police brutality. Yes. And how, like police are becoming more and more militarized mm-hmm. and uh that seems to be problematic when you send them to hopefully like calm a crowd down quote unquote yes. or at least that's what that's what the politicians tell us they're doing yeah but in actuality you're just escalating things yeah i think there's kind of a middle ground here and yeah. that's a president should exude a calm presence for sure because yeah. that really helps but the president should also like say what's right and say what way we should do it. So, like, Mm -hmm. yes, these issues are really severe, these workers' issues, and they need to be dealt with. Now, here's what we're going to do. We need to calm down with the violence. We're Mm -hmm. going to not send in troops, but we're going to come to an agreement. I'm going to have everyone come together for agreement. I'm going to make sure it's all very open and very out in the alma. Yeah. And we're going to come to an agreement that is favorable to all parties, but especially towards, you know, the common man. Mm-hmm. I think that's what pre- presidents need to exude that calmness and that di- diplomatic air. I wonder if them. there's almost a way to consider, like, protests and civil unrest the way you would, like, foreign policy. Yeah, or, like, exactly. you, that's you, a good point. Like, you don't you don't send tanks to, like, two, company, two countries that are, like, fighting, like, right next to you. Yeah. You send diplomats. Yeah, exactly. And I think you need to send, like, domestic diplomats into like kind of see what's going on meet with the leaders and uh kind of diagnose like what you can do to help them yeah exactly you need to apply the lessons of foreign policy which is you don't you don't start with the weapons in the war 
even in like the Civil War, there were attempts to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And you should make attempts to avoid violence because violence is bad. I mean, yeah. most of us are going to, unless you like, you know, violence is good, it's like, people die, and that's yeah. a bad thing. Dying is a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Hot take. War is a bad thing. Hot, <laughs> very hot take. <laughs> Someone's going to tweet at us, be like, I believe in war on all the occasions. Come the 1950s and 60s, that will be a cold take. Oh, <laughs> I like that. So, that was uh, Grover Cleveland. Um, I'd say that was a lively episode. That was, that was very lively. But next time we got the son of Indiana himself, <laughs> Benjamin Harrison. The heir to the dynasty of the Harrisons. Yep. Which people tell me he was a pretty good president. All but right. We, we, we shall see. We'll see if that's uh, if that's territorial bias from Indiana. We'll see if our Hoosier boy lives up to the hype. So, once again, I'm Bradley Cooper. And I am Curtis Cooper. Stay ranking. Rank!